turn in your Bibles, please, to the 17th chapter of Jeremiah. We followed with interest and sorrow the drought situation on our west coast. And various articles uh, raised the question of whether it'll be a repetition of the awful drought that took place in the 1930s. Jeremiah speaks of a different kind of a drought in this chapter, a national drought uh, where, due to the sin of the nation, God causes spiritual drought and, and uh, political, economic, and he gives the solution to it. The first thing that we have here is the constancy of Judah's sin. Remember that Jeremiah addressed himself to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed because of its sin by the Assyrians some years before. And uh, Jeremiah, God's prophet, has tried desperately to turn the southern kingdom from the same path, but unsuccessfully. And God speaks of the indelible nature of Israel's sin in verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with a point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. Habits become characters, and when we sow an act, we reap a habit, and sow a habit, we reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. The famous psychologist William James has a famous chapter on habit, and he points out that Character isn't formed in just a day, uh, but that we make our own hell by habitually fashioning our characters in the wrong way, and that the final step isn't reached in a day, but every concession to evil helps the downward course. And we say when we give in to temptation, well, I won't really count this one, but he says it does count. Down among the nerve cells and the fibers, the molecules are counting it, registering it, storing it up to be used against us when the next temptation comes. And that we rivet chains of iron to our hearts by our habitual giving in to temptation. This is what had taken place in Israel. So that now her sin is just engraved on her heart, the heart of the nation, with a pen of iron. And we've seen as we've looked at this awesome book how parallel the situation is in America today. As America has over the years, in uh, one way after another, compromised from what is right. We've sought uh, by political maneuvering or by 
uh, relying on uh, things that we should not rely on or by our crazed rush for pleasure, our craving as a nation for the easy way out time and time again, we've begun to reap a character that's different from the character that we used to possess as a nation. And our sin has become riveted to our hearts. If that's true of the nation, it's true of the individual. And there sits a man in our congregation this morning who shared with me not too long ago how he began the habit of taking drugs and how this habit gradually began to possess him. And it wasn't too long before he was selling drugs as well as taking drugs. And then he quit his job as an engineer and became a professional pusher of drugs on the streets of our city. So easily uh, these habits form, and perhaps yours is not that particular habit, but whatever your besetting sin is, the parallel, the constancy of Judah's sin, its indelible nature, the influence on the children in verse 2, whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills, Judah had worshipped false gods, just like we worship false gods often, gods of pleasure or power, uh, whatever false gods we worship. And the children had grown up following in the footsteps of the fathers. It influenced them. I'm sure you've been shocked, as I have, by the articles in the paper recently concerning children's pornography, where parents take their children and use them uh, to uh, make money in terms of having their children pose for pornographic pictures, and then these magazines are sold. The influence of the parent on the child, and the influence of the whole thing on our nation. When God says that he visits the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate him, he's not saying that he's going to punish the children for the father's sin if the children are different from the fathers, if the children repent. No. But what he's saying is that there's this awful downward spiral where the children walk in the footsteps of the fathers and even progress further in sin and bring judgment on that nation and on that person and on that family. The influence on the children, the inheritance of which it would rob them. In verse 4, And thou, even thyself, shalt discontinue from thine heritage that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. That this constancy in sin, with its influence on the children, would rob them as a nation of their inheritance. If any nation had an inheritance in our day from God, certainly it's been America, founded by men who wanted freedom to worship God, obviously blessed by God in so many ways, but about to forfeit our inheritance by constancy in sin. Uh, the 
Second point is the contrast between trusting man and trusting God. In verse 5, he says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. He describes the condition of this man. He's cursed of God. His confidence. Cursed is the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. The fact that you cannot trust in God and trust in man at the same time, that in trusting in man your heart is departing from God. And what he's speaking of here is the habit of that nation to constantly be running to Assyria or to Egypt, making alliances, trying uh, with all of their schemes to protect themselves. And God says, no. No, you're cursed when you lean on man and make flesh your strength. Then you're cursed because man will fail you. Only God can save. The battle is not to the swift or the mighty. The battle is the Lord's. Cursed is the man that trusteth in man. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. What about uh, our nation? As we have for some years now followed a course of compromise in our dealings with other nations, as we have time and time again uh, trusted in our alliances, trusted in our statesmanship, instead of doing that which was right and trusting God to be with us as a nation. And we've leaned on the arm of flesh and made it our trust. And what about us as individuals? As we have done the very same thing, uh, relying on our own efforts to advance ourselves, whether in school or whether in uh, the ministry or whether in business, relying on who we know or our own abilities, our own capabilities. Promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west. God is the judge. He setteth up one and putteth down another. We don't need to maneuver and we don't need to have pull. We need to walk with the Lord God. That's the Christian's approach to progress. And it's real progress if God blesses. The, we see the man who trusts in the arm of the flesh, his condition is cursed. Uh, notice, if it's wrong to trust man for advancement in this life, how much more for trusting man for our eternal salvation? What are you building? your hopes around? Is your confidence in this world built around your stocks and bonds, your business, your family, your husband? You're leaning on the arm of the flesh. That'll be disastrous. But if your hope for your standing in the world to come is built around anything human, such as your own goodness, your own record, your church membership, your baptism, then that's dreadful because that will fail you. For 
the world to come and our salvation there, the only thing that we can trust in is God through Jesus Christ. Place our trust in God's Son, whom he sent to die for our sins. Rely upon him alone, and we cannot trust in ourselves and in Jesus Christ for salvation. We trust in Christ alone to save us guilty sinners, or else we're leaning on the arm of the flesh, and it will fail us. It was interesting in the play Jesus of Nazareth that we watched, or the movie, when they had Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We had him stop. He didn't go on and say, And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. But that's what he really said. There's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is the only way to the Father. And trust in him alone. Whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice the man who makes man his trust. But then notice the man who makes God his trust. The contrast. The condition of the man who trusts in God. Verse 7. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. His condition, he's blessed. His confidence is in the Lord. The Lord is his hope. The Lord is what he depends on day in and day out both for our life in this world and in the world to come. Notice the comparison. The first man is compared to a little shrub in verse 6. The man who trusts in man, he shall be like the heat in the desert and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land not inhabited. A little dried up bush in the desert that doesn't bring forth fruit. But notice the comparison of the man who trusts in the Lord. He shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Be like a tree that has a hidden reservoir there that it's drawing from. It will experience the heat. Heat will come. Christians go through troubles when everybody else goes through troubles. We experience trial. But our leaf is green in drought time. There's still fruit. And there's still blessing. God takes the problems and turns them into blessings for us. He causes all things to work together for good to them that love, it, love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. So when he cometh, her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of growth. This, this man won't be full of care. He won't be anxious in such a time because he's, his heart is fixed trusting in the Lord and he will not cease from yielding fruit. The book Green Leaf in Drought Time describes the life of Arthur and Wilda Matthews. Arthur Matthews spoke here some years ago. Arthur and Wilda Matthews were missionaries to China. When the Chinese communists took over, the China Inland Mission, or the OMF, pulled out all of their missionaries out of China, 600, but there were several that weren't able to get out. 
And Arthur and Rhoda Matthews and their baby were one of these. The Chinese communists began to put the heat on. They literally wanted to unofficially starve them to death. And although funds were made available through the OMF to the Chinese government to provide for Arthur and Wilder Matthews, these funds were doled out in such little amounts by the Chinese officials that there was not enough to sustain life, literally. And as Arthur and Wilder Matthews were in this time of drought, they began to understand some of the lessons of how you can have a green leaf in drought time. Uh, how you can draw on God's provision. They had to first begin to focus on God and not second causes. They said it was like an onion being peeled. Different layers were being peeled off as God was shaping them and their thinking and their understanding. And one of the layers that had to be peeled off was the layer of looking at second causes. If the American government would just try harder, they could get us out of here. Uh, if uh, our mission had just acted sooner, we wouldn't be here. Oh, that's second causes. Why are you here? God has us here. Get your eyes off second causes. Get your eyes on the great cause who can change things overnight at his will, who holds the king's hands in his, uh, king's heart in his hands and turns it whithersoever he will, controls everything. That's what happened there. God. Learn to trust him that he has a purpose. Learn to submit. And so they began to learn to submit. They learned what it meant to be meek in God's sight. And learned another lesson. But then one night, uh, each lesson they learned, they kept expecting them to be released. But they weren't released. And years went on in this trying situation. One night they were reading Weymouth's translation of Ephesians 5.10. And it reads like this. Learn in your own experience what is fully pleasing to the Lord. Arthur said to his wife, what do you believe is fully pleasing to the Lord in our situation? And as they discussed it, uh, they decided that not to receive their situation joyfully, really believing and trusting God, believing it was for their good and thus receiving it joyfully, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When you fall into divers trials, count it all joy, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Not to receive it joyfully was to deny the Lord before men. A few nights later it came to Arthur like a flash. The Son of God left heaven, not submitting to the will of God, but delighting in the will of God. Up to now, they'd been submitting. What was it uh, written of Jesus? Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. God, these lambs, they can't really remove sin. The death of a lamb can't atone for a man's sin. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, ultimately. A body thou hast prepared me. You want me to assume a human body. Lo, I come to do thy will. It is written in the book. 
I delight to do thy will, O my God. The Son came not submitting reluctantly to the Father's will, but delighting to do the Father's will, as awesome and awful as it was, to go, to become a servant, to die for our sins. And so they had been acting like servants who don't want to do it, but have to, because they can't get out of it. What a different attitude was the sons. There came a day when Arthur and Wilda knelt before the Lord and abandoned themselves to live on in that stinted little kitchen as long as he wished them to. And the peace of God poured in like a flood, bringing such joy as they had not known before. And Isabel Kuhn, who writes the book, says, Now we see the bursting of the green, green leaf in drought time. And soon God began to move, and soon they were out. Isabel Kuhn, in writing her introduction, says, I wouldn't bother to write another story about Christians who were persecuted and how badly they were persecuted. But she says, to tell of the secret source by which a tree can put forth green leaves when all others around are dried up and dying from the drought, that is timeless. That is needed by all of us. Your drought may not be caused by communism, but the cause of the drying up of life's joys is incidental. What's dried up your joy? The loss of a loved one? A business failure? Some disappointment? Some failure of an arm of flesh that you are leaning upon? When they dry up, is there, can we find a secret source of nourishment that the deadly drop cannot reach. This book wants to suggest an answer to that ageless question of suffering men and women. I will pour water on him that is thirsty. I will pour floods upon the dry ground. Open your heart for the gift I am bringing. While ye are seeking me, I will be found. Green leaf in drought time. When we make the Lord our hope and our trust, what a contrast between those two men. Which of those two men represents you? You notice you make the choice? You make the choice of where you place your trust? You make the choice of which kind of soil you're growing in, whether that desert soil and that fruitless little scrub, or whether you're by the river where there's continual hidden source of supply making your leaf green even in drought time. We see the constancy of sin, the contrast of men, the condition of the heart, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Here's God's diagnosis of the human heart. What's wrong with man? Why all the evil in the world? God says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Jesus said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulterers, fornications. All these things come from within and defile the man. We don't need more education. We don't need some new social program. What man needs is a new heart. The heart is desperately wicked. 
This is brought in right at this point, this diagnosis of the heart, to warn us of the awful danger of deceiving ourselves. Uh, the wickedness of the heart will lead us to trust in things that cannot bear the weight we're placing upon them. Where is your security? If you lost your business tomorrow, would you feel like committing suicide? If your child was killed in an automobile wreck, is your life so twined around that child that that's your security and that's your trust and that's your life and life wouldn't be worth living anymore? The heart is deceitful. It'll lead you to trust in things that are the arm of the flesh, that are earthly, that cannot bear that weight, that cannot see, that cannot give meaning. The heart is deceitful. It'll deceive you as to where your trust really is, as to which of those men you really are. What was it Jesus said? Matthew 7, he said that in that day there would be many who would say, Lord, Lord, have we not done many mighty deeds in thy name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, meaning, and you never knew me. Your heart deceived you. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father that is in heaven. That's the evidence that our heart isn't deceiving us. Which man are we? Are we bearing fruit? Saving trust in Christ, making him our hope for now and for eternity, results in fruit unto holiness, green leaf in drought time. Now, the constancy of sin, the contrast of men, the condition of heart, the cry of the prophet. In verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. They that depart from me shall be written in the earth rather than in heaven, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. What does the prophet say as he sees his nation so wedded to sin and it's so indelible, and their determination not to turn from it, and their deceitfulness where they deceive themselves as to where their trust is. What does he say as he looks at it and he can't seem to do anything about it? He says, Oh, Lord, save me. Lord, remember me. He rushes under the wings of God and places his trust in God. And may we do the same. Whatever our nation does, and as we try to change and turn it, let us rush under the wings of God and cry out to him, place our trust in him. The contempt of the word of God concerns the prophet as part of that crime. He says, verse 15, Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. They say, Jeremiah, 
You've been saying for years that if we didn't turn, God was going to judge us as a nation. Well, where is it? Let it come. It hadn't happened. Jeremiah, you're just a prophet of doom. You're a pessimist. They hold your word in contempt, says Jeremiah. They misread God's long-suffering and mercy and opportunity, day of repentance, day of grace. They misread it as carelessness, as a lack of holiness, as God approving, as God not being upset. They thought that he was altogether such a one as themselves. Don't misread your day of grace and let it lull you asleep. Then there's the final command in regard to the Sabbath. Verse 19, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, whereby the kings of Judah come in, by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say unto them, Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do ye any work, but hallow the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. What's the relation of this command about the Sabbath to the foregoing? Many commentators say there isn't any relation. Uh, This really should have been a new chapter because he's just giving here a whole new discourse. But I like Theodore Lacia's view. He says, no, there's a direct relation. He says, Jeremiah had stressed the absolute necessity of placing one's trust in the Lord alone. And such trust is not mere speculative theology. It's practical reliance upon him in the day in and day out stresses of business life, of home life. It's obedience to him when it's hard to obey, when it's in the competition of the marketplace. And the connection is this. They were violating the Sabbath. They were carrying burdens. What were these burdens? They were carrying out of their house or through the gates. Well, they were things they had to sell. It was market time. They were selling on the Sabbath day, business as usual. Or they were redoing the interior of their shop on the Sabbath day so they wouldn't lose a day of business. Uh, Monday's a business day, and uh, you don't want to lose your day of business, do you? I mean... I mean, if you own a grocery store, you wouldn't dream of changing things out on Monday. You'd do it on Sunday, wouldn't you? Unless, of course, you were open on Sunday and it was business as usual on Sunday as it is in so many places today in America, the second busiest day of business, second most profitable day of business, Sunday in the United States today. In other words, this is where the rubber meets the road. You say you trust in the Lord. You say you want to do his will. Right? What about when it comes to competition in the marketplace? 
What about when it comes to, are we going to open on Sunday? Are we going to sell real estate on Sunday? Are we going to uh, be open and uh, do various things that God says not to do? Or are we going to trust God and obey God and let the chips fall where they may? The shorter, the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches us uh, the meaning of the observance of the Sabbath, Christian Sabbath. Today is the Lord's Day. It says, This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. In other words, it's not a holiday, it's a holy day. It's not a rest. It's not a day of rest. It's a day of rest from our normal occupation and normal activity. It's a day of rest unto the Lord where we come and we worship and we do works of necessity and mercy. We give our attention to him totally. It's a work of necessity when a doctor has to operate on a patient. It's not a work of necessity when you go and work at your job on Sunday. You say, but if I don't work at my job on Sunday, I'll lose my job. So what? Is it necessary that you have that job? Or is it necessary that you be a tree planted by the rivers of water? A man who trusts the Lord, a man who walks with the Lord, which is essential. You see, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is just one concrete illustration of it. And the temptation to compromise and the deceitfulness of the human heart. I think of a gentleman in our congregation some years back who worked for one of the large chain stores across the country. They came to him as they opened up their stores across the south, and they said, you'll open on Sunday. And he said, you'll get yourself another manager. And he'd been with that company 20 years. They said, you mean that if we instruct you to open, that you would rather lose all that you've worked for all these years and all your seniority in this company than open on Sunday? He said, that's exactly right. I don't have to. I don't have to work for you. I do have to obey God. And they backed off. They didn't make him open up, although they continued to put pressure on him. It was interesting to see what happened to that company. That company went bankrupt. All across the nation, that company went bankrupt. It was interesting to see what happened to that man. Of course, he lost his job because his store was part of the chain, went bankrupt. But one month before, he was to shut everything down, 
He had a heart attack. God blessed him with a heart attack. He said, blessed him? Mm-hmm. Why? Well, since he had his heart attack one month before, the company, according to its rules, had to retire him, his total salary virtually. And now he works for the Lord, <clears throat> and the bankrupt company pays his salary every <laughs> I could give illustration after illustration of that kind of thing if I had time. Not only does God give this instruction, but he gives a tremendous promise to the nation. Look at what he says. He says in verse 25, uh, or verse 24, It shall come to pass, if ye diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but to hallow the Sabbath day, to do no work therein. Then there shall enter into the gates of this city kings and princes, sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, and they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall remain forever. This city shall be secure. This nation will be secure. This nation will prosper. You say, we must... Work on Sunday to prosper, God says, no, use hallow my Sabbath, and I will bless, and you will be secure, and you will prosper. And not only will there be that kind of security, but he says there will be a revival of religion. This will spark a revival of true religion. They shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places about Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin and from the plain and from the mountains and from the south bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and meat offerings and incense and bringing sacrifices of praise unto the house of the Lord. How can we best begin to turn our nation back? Well, one way is to hallow the Sabbath. The Christian Sabbath, the bulwark of a nation, one tract says, and there's a lot of truth in that. And if not, if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath, not to bear a burden entering in at the gates of Washington, Jerusalem, Birmingham on the Sabbath day. Then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Solemn words. Which man represents you? Examine your heart. Is there fruit? Charles Simeon. He says... If we find that we have really been born again of the Spirit and been washed from our sins in the Redeemer's blood, if there be no sin which we knowingly indulge, nor any command of God which we do not endeavor to fulfill, if we can call God to witness that the continued labor of our lives is to walk as Christ walked, then God forbid that I should attempt to destroy the confidence of such persons. They have a right to be confident, and instead of distressing their minds with needless fears, I would exhort them to hold fast their confidence and the rejoicing of their hope firm unto the end. But I would entreat them to deal faithfully with their souls and to pray like David, Lord, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. The importance of self-examination. The importance of making our trust in the Lord concrete, like remembering the Sabbath, to hallow it. The importance 
of regeneration. The beginning place is to get that heart changed, to have the stony heart taken out, to be given a heart of flesh. Jesus said to make the tree good and the fruit will be good, and Jesus can make the tree good. Christ gives a new heart. If he's invited in as Lord and Savior, have you ever done that? That's the beginning place. That's making him your trust. That's ceasing to lean on the arm of the flesh. Let us pray. If you've never done that, won't you right now, in your heart, commit yourself to Jesus Christ. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, too long I've leaned on the arm of flesh. I want to make you my hope and my trust. Come into my life. Give me a clean heart. Uh, remove that indelible habit of sin. Break those sins and chains that bind me, just as you did for that man who was the drug addict. In Jesus' name, amen.